take out your Bibles and uh, and kids can go to kids church of course <clears throat> so as you are uh, getting settled open your Bibles to John chapter 1 verse 1 and I'm gonna share with you a story um, it's a total pastor joke story. I'm not big on pastor jokes. I think they're cheesy and fun, but I try not to rely on them too much. And whether you like them or not, is not a big deal. But here's the story. So um, it's Easter time. Young girl is watching her mom. Her mom is uh, preparing the Easter ham because you eat ham on Easter. It doesn't make any sense, but whatever. So they're, they're preparing the ham and she knows her mom uh, cuts the end off the ham and then puts it in the pan, the ends off. And, um, and she's like, what do you mean? She's like, why'd you cut those sides off? She's like, well, well, my mother taught me, and when she taught me how to cook the ham, she cut the ends off, and I'm just kind of following suit. Oh, okay, well, well why, why did grandma cut it off? I don't know. So the, the daughter goes to her grandmother and says, you know, grandma, when you prepare the ham, why do you cut the ends off? Well, my, my mom, she, she did the same thing. That, this is just how I was taught. This is how I learned. I have watched and observed my mother, your great-grandmother. I observed her doing the same thing. So that's how I, that's just how you prepare the ham. And so by virtue of uh, pastor story, the great grandmother is still alive and the daughter goes to her and says, great grandma, why, why do you cut the ends off of the ham? And she said, oh, because it didn't fit in my pan. So I had to cut the ends off, put it in the pan, so it fit in the pan so I can cook it. Now, that is a very lame story. I accept that and I'm okay with it, but it proves a very valid point. There are times where we do things not because they are the right things to do or believe things, not because they are right or correct, but simply because we've been taught that, never questioned it, and just kind of moved on with it. In this account and in this story, you have people who trust and love each other. And so when they saw somebody doing one thing, they just assumed, well, that's just how you do it. Now, the very first person had a logical reason for why they did what they did, but everybody after that just simply followed suit, trusted without questioning, and then ended up doing something that they themselves didn't really have to do. It was not pertinent to the recipe to do that to the ham. If they had a pan large enough, you could just leave the whole thing in there, right? And so I use that as a segue into how we follow Jesus. Sometimes we follow Jesus because we've watched somebody else do it a certain way. Somebody has taught us a certain way, but we don't go back to the word of God to see, hey, is that really what the word of God says? Is that really what's being taught? Is that the, the command? Is that the expectation of the Lord in my life? Or is that something that this person did and handed down to that person, and now generations and generations later, we're simply doing it out of tradition or because we're just not questioning anything? There are lots of religions today that do that without questioning and some use it to kind of keep people in line and if you question that, you become ostracized or excommunicated from the church. And so we at South Bay Chapel, we have no uh, desire to do that whatsoever. We wanna know what the word says because it's the word of God that is our, uh, our standard. We look at the word of God as being right here and we're underneath it. We don't stand on top of it. We don't tell it what to do. We don't change it to suit our beliefs or our feelings. Our feelings are to be changed by what the word of God says, not vice versa. And so in this series of what we believe, what we're trying to do is not just develop what I believe as a person or a pastor, not just what you believe as a person, not just what South Bay Chapel believes, but what does the church believe based on what the word of God says? This means we might fall into places where we contradict 
current culture, but biblically we're absolutely correct. We are following in suit. And we might find things that, that, that we've been doing are not necessary. That we've been doing this for X amount of years only to find out God has never commanded us to do that. Or we might learn that, oh my gosh, I didn't even know this part of the word was there. I didn't know God expected this of me. And there might need to be some repentance to, to say, you know what, Lord, I'm sorry that I glossed over that or, or, or someone taught me in this way and I just kind of accepted it as gospel when I didn't go back and check it for myself. In the book of Acts, there's a group of people called the Bereans and they heard Paul come and preach. And after he was done, they went back to the word to see if it was so. Now, I don't know of any other teacher, preacher, pastor on the planet today that I would put on par with a man like Paul. If Paul were to miraculously come back here and begin to preach, I would allow him to, and I probably wouldn't question anything he said, because it's Paul, right? If I was alive in those days, and I know Paul as I know him now through the word, I would say, Paul's just absolutely right. Why would I question him? He's the apostle Paul. He, he, he's gone through so much, he obviously knows what the word of God says. But the Bereans were like, no, we can't trust in man. We gotta trust what the word of God says. And so today, we're going to explore what the word of God says about Jesus. Because what we think about Jesus really is secondary to what the word of God says about Jesus and, and proclaims him to be. So John chapter one says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That last line, the, the light of Jesus, it cannot be extinguished. The, it confounds the darkness. The light of Christ is a pure light that cannot be stopped or quenched by anything that we know of, okay? By no one thing. John, a little background on the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, along with the other three Gospels, uh, was written later than the first three. The first three, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, they were kind of all written around the same time, same time frame, 60, 65 AD, somewhere around there. A good, you know, 20, 25, 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But John, for whatever reason, we don't know why, uh, waited till much later, something like 80, 85 AD. He was an older man, though he was considered probably the youngest of the uh, disciples, he was much older when he wrote uh, the Gospel of, uh, of John. He probably didn't call it that, especially <laughs> what we call it to attribute authorship to him. Um, his gospel's so much different than the other three. I mean, not different in the sense that it teaches something different, but his approach, knowing these other three books, he decided instead of, let's just, instead of just reiterating what's already been said, let's, let's explore some of the things these other authors didn't talk about. And one of the things that he highlights here is this light that Jesus is. It's, it's this theme uh, that you find in the letters that he wrote in the book of Revelation. It's how Jesus reveals himself to John on the Isle of Patmos. And so John, I picture him, old man, sitting there recounting uh, this, this incredible walk that he had with this man, Jesus, who, who had claimed to be God and how it changed his life. He was considered, John, you know, when you read the Gospels, it's always uh, three guys considered the inner circle of Jesus. And that's James, John, and Peter. John is always there. He was given a nickname by Jesus, which I think is the coolest thing ever. He was uh, given the nickname along with his brother, the Sons of Thunder, 
which is like uh, a monster truck uh, name. I think that's really cool. It's indicative of who they were as men. They weren't, they didn't shy away from opposition. They were ready to go in and fight. Um, if anything, Jesus had to hold them back because of their ambition. And so that's, that's John. Now he's older. He's gone through some persecution. Um, while other apostles at this point are probably dead, he's still alive. Not, in, not because people haven't tried to kill him for the word, but, but he's just survived every attempt. And here he is, you know, scars and, and years and lots of miles on him. And he's writing down this gospel account. And he starts off by saying, in the beginning. It's the same exact words that the book of Genesis says when you read the book of Genesis, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John doesn't just say Jesus was a good man, Jesus was a good teacher. He says, in the same way that God created in the beginning, Jesus was in the beginning as well. That he is beyond time. He is not limited by the ticks of a clock or the days on a calendar, that he is eternal. The word of God was with God and the word was God. If you've ever wondered why, you know, and we'll talk about this in the, in the coming weeks when we talk about the Bible and, and just the Bible itself, why we trust it. Um, and why we, we follow it so closely, uh, John tells us through the, the Holy Spirit that this word that we read, not the page, not the ink, not the fake leather on the, on the outside, um, but the word itself is God. That Jesus and the word are, are, are intertwined, they're, they're connected in such a way that you cannot separate the two. You cannot say, well, the word told me this and Jesus tells me this. No, if Jesus said it, and the, the word will back it up and vice versa. So John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything we see, everything we know in this universe, I mean, this extends beyond our own planet. This is everything that we know, everything that we discover daily about the universe, galaxies and, 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 and black matter and stars and black holes and all this, everything, all of this was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. We are gonna look at three things that Jesus is not and 10 things that Jesus is. If you do not like reading the Bible, and you don't like taking notes, and you don't like lots of scriptures in a sermon, you're gonna be gravely disappointed today because we're gonna have all of those. If you're a student of the word, if you love the Bible and just learning about it, even when it challenges you and it, and it rebukes you, but you still love it because you see God loves and cares for me in such a way he won't allow me to be in error my whole life. He'll correct me rather than just let me go on in my error, well, then you're gonna have a good day. And who knows how long we'll be here. Just hang in there and you'll be blessed. Let's look at some of the things that Jesus is not. Number one, Jesus is not created. Um, some will argue that Jesus is just a guy. Um, the truth of the matter is, and we'll get into this in just a moment, yes, he was human. He did have flesh, but he wasn't just a guy who was born, who did some good stuff, and then God decided, hey, I'll use him. Uh, you know, that Jesus guy caught my eye. I'll, I'll use him to pay for the sins of the earth. He was more than just a prophet. He was more than just a teacher. He wasn't just simply a good guy who did good things that Jesus or that God decided to choose to do good things. Number two, he's not an angel. Um, if you read the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews go to, goes to great lengths, especially in the first chapter, to tell the, the Jewish audience of that book, look, Jesus is not just an angel. He's not an angelic created being. 
He says this in verse five of chapter one, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels, uh, angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, you, uh, quoting again, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They wore out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same and your years will never end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The writer of the book of Hebrews, right away, if you wonder why we preach the way we preach, read a book like the book of Hebrews. Within five verses, the guy starts quoting the Old Testament over and over and over again. He's not coming with his own ideas. He's not coming with his own uh, theories about Christ. He's saying, look, here's what the word of God says about the son of God. He says, it, it, he's not like the angels because God has never spoke about the angels in the terms of being like a son. He's never said, you know, come sit by my side. I will make you, uh, I will make your enemies like your footstool. He's never said that to any of his angels, but to the son, to Christ, to, to the one who's not just like God, but is God himself, he has said these things. Lastly, Jesus is not dead. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot in the news, especially at, at Easter time. We'll see it coming up in, in March and April, CNN and National Geographic and all the History Channel. They'll all have specials about the tomb of Christ and this and that and theories and blah, blah, blah. And they'll all, you know, they'll captivate us. But in the end, like every reality show that we've ever seen, there is no conclusion at the end. The word of God concludes and tells us that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus rose from the dead. He was witnessed by uh, uh, Peter and James and John. He was witnessed by the 327 Marys that are mentioned in the gospels. There's so many Marys, it's hard to figure them out. But his mom, Mary Magdalene, Mary whoever, they were all, they all witnessed him. And Men like Joseph of Arimathea who donated his family tomb to have Jesus buried and witnessed him and, and Nicodemus witnessed him and more than 500 other people, the book of 1 Corinthians says, uh, witnessed Jesus after his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians that uh, many of those people are still alive. Go talk to them. Go, it's like if you wanted to learn about World War II, and, and there's lots of people who talk about World War II, but you know some people who are vets of World War II. And we just say, well, if you want to really learn about it, go talk to that guy. He was there. He was, he was on the beaches of Normandy. He was, he was there in this place when they invaded here and he was part of that, or he was uh, injured in that battle. He'll tell you all about it because he was there. Paul says, if you're learning about Jesus, you want to know more about him, go talk to that guy or that guy or those other 500 plus people who saw Jesus. Go talk to them. Talk to the apostles. Talk to, the, talk to Jesus' mom. When you read the Gospel of Luke, it's an investigative account. He went and talked to Jesus' mom about what the angel told her and, and, and what she felt when, when the Spirit came upon her and she was, had this baby that was a, a miracle. I mean, babies are miracles in and of themselves, but, but Jesus being born was even more so a miracle. 
So we have these accounts that, that Jesus is not dead, he's not an angel, he's not just a guy, but what or who does the Bible say that Jesus is? So here's 10 things. And this isn't even the full exhaustive list, but if we can walk away with, with just some of these or all of these today, we'll have a different understanding, a biblical understanding of who Jesus is. Number one, he's the son of God. Matthew chapter 17 verse five says, he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Let me give you some context. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, the big three, they go up to this mountain and Jesus has this prayer meeting and these three men are privy to what happens. Jesus is transfigured, he's changed. His human form changes from his, to his eternal form and there's this meeting between God the Father and God the Son. And these three men hear it and Peter's like, oh, we gotta do something special. Like we saw this, let's, let's build a shrine here. Let's build a monument here because this is big. Totally on par with Peter's, uh, uh, Peter's kind of uh, character, just kind of big and boastful, but in the end doesn't really follow through with things. That's the context of what we're reading here. It says that, uh, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. I watch these people and they talk about the Lord speaking to them and they don't have any reverence. They don't have any kind of respect. They just kind of march around like, like they told God what to do. And then I read this, when they hear God's voice and they fall and they're terrified. Now, there's a reason why the Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is, is the fear of the Lord this reverence, this, this realization that God is not just somebody to trifle with. He's not something we manipulate. He's not a person that is under our control, but we indeed are uh, subject to him. And I've done this before. I've likened him to, you know, if you've ever used power tools, you know, if you've ever used something like a chainsaw or a circular saw or, or just anything with a fast spinning blade, you got to respect that power. You got to make sure that you don't come in there with loose clothes and all flippy dippy and just going to cut whatever you want because you're going to lose a finger. You're going to lose a foot. You're going to get hurt without respecting the power within that. Now, that's a very weak analogy about God because we're not going to control God. But we've got to understand that when we try to control God, we might end up in a place where we hurt ourselves or hurt others. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to hurt somebody in Jesus' name. We don't want to be added to that list of people who have just gone out in Jesus' name and hurt a bunch of people. We want to make sure that if we're going to do something, we've done so because we followed after the Lord and his commands. The Bible says that Jesus is the son of God. This means that Jesus is not female. This means that he's not androgynous. This means that his, uh, his gender is specific. His gender is important. son being born meant that it had to be specific. Otherwise, Jesus is not a fulfillment of that prophecy. It is absolutely important that Jesus be male, not so that men can be in control, not because men are most important, because God said that he would be sending a son, we'll talk about this in a moment, to us. So that's part of the criteria of who Jesus needed to be so that he could fulfill that prophecy. Again, it doesn't make men more important. We don't use that to lord ourselves over females, but it is the truth of the word. The Bible calls him the son of God, describes him in male features, so we accept that because that's what the Bible says. As I said before, Jesus is not an angel. He's, he's actually of God. Number two, Jesus is absolutely human. Now, we would say these two contradict one another, 
hey Sophie, that these two contradict, you can't be spirit and you can't be flesh. You can't be God and you can't be man. This is why Jesus, another one of the reasons why he is so much different than the rest of us. Why not just any man can step up or any woman step up and say, I'll give myself for the sacrifice of men, for the sins of mankind. Because being fully God, he was also fully man. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, you, uh, excuse me, who, though as, uh, butchering this, hold on one second, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There are some who believe that Jesus pulled a Superman on the cross, that, that living life, he was like, well, you know, oh, I'm pretending to suffer, when in reality, nothing really hurt him. Like he was just kind of above it all and just beyond it because he's God. The Bible says that he emptied himself of that so that he might feel the same pain that we do. When Jesus suffered on the cross, he felt agonizing pain as we would being nailed to the cross as well. Jesus was not just a spirit, so he didn't feel anything. He was fully God and fully man. Number three, he's the only begotten. And this is another very important detail about Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There are religions and, and strains of religiosity that, that say that Jesus uh, is one of God's sons, that another one of God's sons is Satan. And that in speaking of the redemption of the world or what to do about sin, um, each one presented a plan to God the Father. And the father chose Jesus' plan of redemption rather than Satan's plan of annihilation. This makes Satan mad. So now everything we know is a sibling rivalry between Jesus and Satan. The Bible does not affirm or teach this at all. We believe that to be heresy and apostasy. And we do not believe that Jesus had a spiritual sibling. He is the only begotten of the father. Now he did have physical brothers and sisters. If you read the account of Jesus going back to his hometown to, to preach at the local synagogue in Mark chapter three, he preaches and because he kind of grew up in that town, they're like, who is this guy? Like we know his dad, we know his mom, we know his brothers and sisters. He's the carpenter's son. What's he doing up there? How's he know all this stuff? And instead of saying he knows all this stuff, let's find out more, they just write him off. So the Bible or Jesus kind of quotes and says, you know, uh, a prophet in his hometown just it really doesn't, do anything. Prophet in his own town, does, hometown doesn't get any respect. You know, have you ever, have you ever grown up, and this is sort of a, a glimpse of that, you grow up and you live in your town, and everybody kind of knows you, and you go to a new place, and they treat you differently, and you're like, wow, that's weird, and you go back home, and you kind of fall back into that old lifestyle. Maybe, maybe you left your house, mom and dad treated you one way, you leave, and then you come back, and you're like a, a big know-it-all, uppity-up, and you just know all this stuff, and you come back, but you fall right back into being the child of the household. Mom and dad still look at you as a kid, Kind of the same mentality. Jesus goes out, he's healing people. All this stuff's happening. World's turned upside down. But he comes back home and people are like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's the carpenter's son. I know who he is. I'm not listening to all this truth he's spewing out. I'm just gonna go ahead and write him off. And as a result, Jesus said, he didn't perform a lot of miracles. Not because people didn't believe so he couldn't use their belief, but they just simply didn't come to him. 
They didn't believe, so they didn't say, Jesus, heal me of this, or Jesus, help me with that. They just didn't even go to him because he's just Joseph's son. He's just Mary's son. We know his brothers and sisters. But spiritually speaking, or eternally speaking, he's the only begotten of the Father. Um, Number four, Jesus was, this is a twofer, uh, so four and 4.5, or 4.2, born of a virgin and born in Bethlehem. Again, these are very important. You would think, well, no, it doesn't matter if he was born of a virgin. or It doesn't matter that he was born in Bethlehem. It absolutely, absolutely does matter because the Old Testament said that this Savior that was coming, this Messiah, this one to expect who would bring the kingdom of God would be born in Bethlehem, would be born of a virgin. And there are countless other prophecies about Jesus that we can add here. But just these two are enough today to talk about the importance of fulfilling prophecy in Jesus's, or excuse me, in our lives through Jesus. The Bible says that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7 14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. In context there, uh, this, this, this leader of Israel is being challenged. Tell God, you know, challenge God, ask for a sign. And that guy's like, well, I'm not asking for nothing. Oh, I'm not going to test God. And so God decides and says, here, I'll I'll give you something. I'll show you something miraculous. There's going to be a virgin. She's going to give birth to a son. Again, very specific. Not a person's going to give birth to a person, but but a a real woman is going to become a mother. She's going to be a mom to a baby boy. And it won't be through natural childbirth or how how, uh, every other person's been born. This will be something miraculous and supernatural. A virgin, a a woman who's never had sex with a man will have a baby. And you, you know, that's the only way you know how to make children. And it really is the only way, right? I mean, we have technology and things and in vitro and that sort of thing. But I mean, speaking of then, to have this miracle, you'd have to step back and go, wait, it can't physically happen this way. It must be a miracle. And then in Micah chapter five, verse two, it says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. If you've ever heard songs uh, referencing Jesus as the ancient of days, this is where that comes from. It means he's, he's eternal. He's beyond the days or the time that we know. And the Bible says through the prophet Micah that this one will come through Bethlehem. Though it's a small, tiny town, that's where the leader, the, the, the one, the king of kings, lord of lords, will come from. We as people, we would expect leaders to come from leaderly places. New York City, Los Angeles, you know, big cities where, where people know more stuff. And, and the Bible says he's not gonna come from Jerusalem, which would be like our New York City. He's not gonna come from these big other, this little tiny, tiny town of Bethlehem, this little hick place, more animals than people. It's, nobody's gonna be educated. Everybody's just gonna be doing their father's trade, very blue collar, very rural. From there, that's where the Messiah will come. So Jesus being born in Bethlehem is very important. It can't be anywhere else. That's where it must be because that's the prophecy. And so Jesus was born. So we believe as a church, close-handedly, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was born in Bethlehem. All of these things, by the way, these, these 10, these are close-handed issues. We don't, we don't argue or differ on these things. Not because my opinion is greater than yours or vice versa, because it's what the Bible says. And if we struggle with these, then we struggle with the word of God. We don't struggle with man. We struggle with what God has said about his son. Number five, the Bible says he laid down his life. 
honestly, this is my favorite one. If I could preach on just one of these, it would be this one. In John chapter 10, verse 14, it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The charge I have received, this charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I haven't just come for the Jewish people. I've come for the Gentiles as well. I haven't just come for the Jewish flock. We're going to bring everybody into this flock. I'm coming. I'm laying down my life. Now, from mankind's perspective, that means from you and I, Jesus was absolutely murdered. When you read the account uh, of that Passion Week, he was wrongfully accused, given this weirdo Mickey Mouse trial, nothing done according to the letter of the law. They execute him by mob rule. So absolutely, in both Gentile and Jew, we don't blame any one group, mankind itself demanded the life of Christ on that day 2,000 years ago. But here's what, from God's perspective, how he explains it. I lay down my life and I take up my life again. That means when you consider your sins, when you consider what you have done and what you've been forgiven for, you have to understand this truth that Jesus did that willingly for you. He wasn't forced into it. it. His life was not taken from him. He looked at us collectively and individually and said, yes, I lay down my life for you and you and you, and I raise up my life for you and you and you. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He laid his life down because he loves his sheep, he says. And sheep are just, if you ever read about sheep, sheep are fickle. Sheep are always wandering off. They're always biting. They've always got ticks and they're always threatened by any noise or anything that happens. Any kind of change and, and the sheep kind of freak out and the shepherd's got to go in. He's always got to be constantly looking at them, watching them, reassuring them, comforting them, correcting them so that that they know his voice and he knows their voice. When I see folks on TV and, and it's clear that they're teaching something unbiblical and Jesus says, they will know my voice. I have to just question whether or not they're following Jesus or if they're following someone else or something else. Because Jesus said, they'll know my voice and I will, I will know their voice. If, if the Lord tells me something, which means I feel, I know, I experience, I hear in my spirit, in my flesh, whatever, something that I believe to be from God, I must go back to his word. Has he said this before? Is this line up with what he has said? Tony, go in there and tell the church they've got to give you a ton of money. Okay, let me go find a scripture that says that. Okay, there isn't one. So that's not God speaking to me. Go in there and tell them you need a jet. Okay, let me find a, let me find a scripture. Nope, no jet scripture. Then that's not of God. Go tell them, repent of their sins, repent of being stiff-necked, to be generous towards those who are less than them, to love their neighbor as themselves. Does the word say that? Oh yeah, it says it a lot and repeatedly. Okay, we're gonna say that. See, we know the word of God because the word of God is to be known. We hear his voice, he hears our voice, we know his voice and can confirm it in his word. Now there may be times, I'll be honest with you, where, where you hear something from the Lord and it does seem kind of vague and I would just instruct you to wait on that. Wait for clarity, wait for, wait, you know, pray through that. God, what are you saying to me? What am I supposed to be doing? 
You know, don't just run off reactionary. Say, okay, God, if I've got the time, can I, can I sit on this and pray about this so that I, I have a better understanding of what I am to do and what I'm supposed to say because I, I, I'm, I'm in a place of confusion and you're not a God of confusion, so let's, let's just wait on that. I have to believe that anytime we come to the Lord and just say, hey, hey, Lord, we want to wait on you. When the Bible says to wait on the Lord, I have to believe he's like the dad who watches his kids clean their room without being asked. It's just like, oh, he, he's waiting on the Lord. She's waiting on, on me. That's awesome. Yes. Okay, pray and wait, and then further instructions will come later. That sort of thing. All that being said, Jesus laid down his life for you, willingly, wanting to, desiring to make reconciliation with you. Number six, he's the savior of the world. Luke chapter two, verse 11 says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the only savior. There is no other savior. I cannot die for your sins. You cannot die for your sins. Jesus is the only one who is fully God, fully man. This makes him savior by by virtue of dying for your sins in your place. The Bible says that God's wrath that that we deserved, that it collectively was poured upon Jesus on the cross. That Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death by giving his life for you and I. 1 Timothy 1 and 15 says, This saying, or the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul repeatedly, repeatedly would say, You know what? I'm the chief of sinners. I, I'm of all, we're all sinners. But he wouldn't say, You're all sinners. He'd say, We're all sinners, and I'm the worst one. I, I, I do my best to adopt this mentality. Not to be self-deprecating, not to just be like, oh, woe is me. Because I really do believe that it's a great hindrance to us when we think somebody else's sin is greater than ours. Well, you know, I didn't cheat and swindle a com- company out of thousands or millions of dollars. All I've done is lie to my wife and, and be short-tempered and, uh, you know, fudge my taxes a little bit every year. But everybody does that. It's a white lie. When I begin to look at other people's sin as greater than my own sin, I've, I've missed the point of Christ's sacrifice. Number seven, Jesus alone is the payment for the sins of man. Isaiah 53 and four says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one on his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 is the picture of the suffering servant. Um, people wrongfully will quote this scripture in this chapter as the, the key verse to get you healed for something. That's not why this verse was said to us. This is not why uh, it was given to us. When you read through that chapter, the sickness being talked about is sin. You can be healed of the flu. You can be healed of cancer. You can be healed of all these things. You absolutely can. Don't hear the opposite of this in what I'm saying right now. You can. But the ultimate sickness we all need healing of is the sickness of sin. Jesus was nailed to a cross not so that we could be healed of a cold. He was nailed to a cross not so that we could be healed of cancer as big as cancer is. And you know my son went through cancer. So I don't say these words lightly. He was nailed to a cross because we suffer from the sickness of sin, the, 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 the inherited sin from our forefathers as well as the sins we've committed. And the Bible says it's like a sickness and Jesus bore that sickness on the cross for us. Those transgressions, those trespasses for us. 
And so Isaiah 53 and four says that this suffering servant of God was nailed to the cross. Hundreds of years before it actually happened, this prophetic word is given that he'd be pierced for our transgressions. He'd be pierced because we would go beyond the boundaries of God, that we would make war, enmity between us and God through sin, and he himself would bear that sickness, that burden, that uh, every other word for sin you could think of. He bore that on our behalf. My, my death will not pay for my sins, but Jesus' death does. Number eight, he's the conqueror of death. Oh man, death is the worst, right? When somebody, you get that phone call, so-and-so has died. I don't care if it's some uncle you hadn't seen in years or just somebody, I mean, it's not a fun phone call. You, you hear that somebody really close to you dies, it just wrecks your whole month. I mean, at the very least, that whole week of, you ever had to plan a funeral? It's the, the first funeral I ever had to plan, plan was for my first son. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm dealing with my wife who's just broken beyond broken. And I'm talking to this guy who, I don't know, he, he, well-meaning guy, but he's, he's, he's just, I don't want to talk to him right now. I don't want to be doing this right now, but yet I have to, and it smells like a, there's 400 Glade plugins in the place, and I just can't bear the smell anymore, and, and just put whatever on the tombstone and do the day, whatever. Like, it's just not something you cherish and something you revere and something you desire. But when we read the Bible, we read that though we all may go through death and we might experience death ourselves and, and the death of others, that Jesus conquered death. What does that mean? What, what is tangible that we can take away from that? That the death we experience here, as unnatural as it feels, that it's not the end. It's not just hope, pious, kind of, oh, we'll just by and by, eternity and all that. But no, there's this real absolute promise that Jesus himself has conquered death. Again, laid down his life and then picked it back up again. So that one day you will lay down your life and it will be taken back up again. You will inherit eternal life, not because you were a good person, not because you gave a lot of money to the church or you started a church or you pastored a church, but you will be saved and forgiven and given eternal life because Jesus beat death. Oh, grave, I'm gonna butcher this. Grave, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Death, where is it? Because Jesus has conquered the grave. So for us as Christians, when you put your faith in Christ, death is an inconvenience, but it's not the end. Death might bring tears of sorrow, but they'll also bring tears of joy. We've had some in the church pass away. And as I preach, I will tell them, yes, you are sorrowful now, but I guarantee you now that these that are in the presence of the Lord no longer shed tears of pain like we do. They have now met face to face their God, the one they placed their hope in. And they might look upon us expectantly waiting for us to come and join them, but their tears of pain, their tears of sorrow are now gone. Revelation 117 says, fear not. And this is Jesus speaking to John again uh, on the Isle of Patmos. He's 90 years old. He's been exiled because he won't stop preaching about Jesus. And so he's in this cave somewhere and Jesus starts talking to him. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that is not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. The writer of Hebrews uses the, the, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the place where once a year the high priest went in and made atonement for the sins of Israel. He would go in with the blood of a spotless lamb. He would take that blood. He would sprinkle that blood. It would be for atonement. Not, not for cleansing, but for covering of the sins of Israel. Where he went was a copy, was, was, was a facsimile of what was in heaven. And he would have to do that yearly because I guarantee you the minute they made atonement for the sins that the high priest probably stubbed his toe somewhere and said, oh, darn it, and then had to repent of that sin. Like the nation just kept sinning after that. It was not stopping sin. It was not making a way for sin to be stopped. It was just covering sin. But the writer of Hebrews says, here's how it's the same and here's how it's different. Yes, God himself in the form of Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies, but he brings his own blood. He brings his own sacrifice. He brings himself, not to just cover our sins so that God can kind of wink at it and say, all right, you're in, but to cleanse us so that now when we stand before Christ, it's not just, it's not just Tony with all this baggage, it's cleansed, white as snow. Though my sins were like scarlet, the prophet Isaiah says, now they're as white as snow. I stand there now in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not of my own actions, but of what he has done. And this is a wonderful segue into number nine, I said, at the end it said, uh, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting for him. Number nine, we believe that Jesus is returning. Yes. We believe that Jesus is coming back. We believe that the first coming of Jesus is a, it precedes the second coming of Jesus. So now as a church, we anxiously await Jesus' return. We are anticipating that he will return in his own timeline when he decides to. I, I just heard <laughs> the other day, I was on the internet and I saw this video, some prophet claiming that Jesus is coming back in September. September 23rd to be specific, which is right after my birthday, so I'm okay with that. No, no, you read the Bible. The Bible tells us that we will not know the time or the hour. He will come like a thief in the night. He will come when he wants to and we need to be ready. We cannot simply just, you know, stand idly by. He's never going to come. No, the Bible says, be ready. Be ready. Your redemption draws nigh and all of that. Jesus will return. Acts chapter one, verse six says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, that is Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Great question. The disciples wanted to know. They'd been through a lot of stuff. Now they want to know, Jesus, are you bringing the kingdom of God? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power from uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he, said, uh, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, uh, as he went behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
Now let me recreate that moment, that moment for just real quick. All the disciples, all the people following Christ, they've seen him uh, uh, killed and dead and buried and then resurrected. He's now gone for a few, uh, you know, for I think it's like 40 or 50 days. People have seen him. And now he's going to go back into heaven. He's ascended. This is Jesus' ascension. And essentially, all the disciples like watch him ascend to heaven. And they just stand there. And they're watching. And I'm guessing nobody's talking. That's speculation. But they do so for so long that God sends two men in white robes. These aren't just security. These are probably angelic beings. To tell them, hey guys, you're supposed to be doing something. Not just gazing up to heaven. There's a job for you to do. The same Jesus that you just saw leave, he's gonna come back in the same way. So go about your business. Go, go. remember what Jesus said, go wait for power from on high. Go do that in the meantime. Don't just sit around doing nothing. Go do something while you're waiting for Christ. We believe that Jesus will return one day. He will come not to die for sins again, but to save us. To, to bring us into that, that fold he spoke of in the Gospel of John, that we will be his people, that he will be our God. We will see him as he is to be known. So the book of 1 Corinthians says that we see now through like a mirror dimly, like, like an old rusted out mirror. We kind of see Jesus, but we don't see him fully, but then we will know him. We will see him. We will be changed so that we, I didn't even talk about that. We'll be changed so that we can experience him. You ever take your kids someplace that super overstimulating, lots of flashing lights, loud noises, people running around, it's very chaotic. Maybe something like a concert, and they're just not ready for it. And they're just so overwhelmed by in their senses that they almost shut down. They just can't, I, I can't deal with this because they're too little, too small to even process what's happening. It's that same way that now when we experience Christ, sometimes it's so overwhelming that we can't even handle it. But then we will be changed so that we can. This corrupted body will be changed into uncorruptible or incorruptible, non-corruptible, one of those three, so that we can experience Christ as he fully is. He won't be Christ holding back. He'll be fully Christ and we'll be able to experience him without you know, falling uh, like we're dead as people in the book of Revelation and, and the, uh, Isaiah and in Daniel, as they did when they experienced God, they just kind of felt like they were dead because they were so overwhelmed by the presence of God. So ultimately what we believe is what the title of our sermon is today. We don't believe Jesus is just a good guy or that Jesus was a good teacher, or that Jesus was a good prophet or a really anointed man or that he was probably the most spiritual guy. We believe that Jesus is God. We believe that when we speak of God, we speak of Jesus. My daughter, I, I'll say things about God and Jesus and I'll interchange those names. And if I say Jesus, say, well, she, he's God anyways. I mean, he's God, right? And I'm like, well, yeah. Like she gets it somehow at, at well, she's six now. Darn it. She's not four anymore. At six, I mean, she gets it. With, with this faith, this, when the Bible talks about childlike faith, I mean, talk to a kid and they just, they're able to process things so much faster than us without all of our baggage because they don't have any baggage yet. I think, well, yeah, Jesus is God. The Bible teaches us, shows us time and time again that Jesus is God. When the, the Israelites, the Pharisees specifically, they challenged Jesus and they were questioning his upbringing and they were questioning his mom and the virgin birth and all that. And Jesus kept telling them, no, you, see, you, guys, you guys don't get it. You guys, um, 
you guys are slaves to sin. And they're like, no, we're not slaves. We're sons of Abraham. And, and Jesus replies, before Abraham was, I am. And to us Gentiles, we don't get that. We don't understand that what Jesus just did was detonate this, this hydrogen bomb theologically for the Pharisees. The Pharisees at that point wanted to kill Jesus for what he said. Why? Because he said, I am. Meaning I am eternal. It's the same thing that the burning bush said to Moses back in Exodus or Genesis, whichever one. Go read it yourself. Exodus. I can't do everything. Come on, you gotta do something. Read the Bible. Who should, Moses, who should I say, say sent me? Say, I am that I am has sent me or sent you. Jesus put him right, Jesus said, I, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was, or I were, which isn't English, but I mean, even in the Hebrew, that's not what it says. What it says is, I am. Amen. And had he said, you know, I've just been around longer than you or, or, you know, something like that, they wouldn't have wanted to kill him. But instead he put himself father and son together and for that reason they wanted to kill him. We believe that Jesus is God. He's our friend. He's our savior. He's our brother. He's our contemporary in doing mighty things. The Bible says that we'll do mighty works as he did. He's our redeemer. He's the king of kings, lord of lords. He's the name above all names. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the, the end. He's all of these things. He is God. He's the second person of the Trinity along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit changes you to worship Jesus. The Bible says that when you come alongside Jesus in that way that you are encapsulated, if you will, by this Trinitarian God, that God the Father loves you. He sent the Son to die for you so that the Son might make payment for your sins so that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you might become a child of God. Romans 8 and 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today, you have no fear of the consequences that you deserve because Jesus took them for you. Now, because you are his child, you will be disciplined as a child. A father or a mother who loves their child will discipline their children when they act out of line, of course. But it will not be eternal judgment. It will be to make you better. It will be to make you a better example of, his follow, of, of being one of his followers. He will change you to be more like him by his grace and by his mercy. What do you have to do today to get that? Have faith in him. To believe in him. To accept this offer of grace and mercy towards you, this extended hand to you. God has been pursuing you your whole life. In the darkest of times, he was still there. In the greatest of times, he was still there. And he has waited, and he has waited, he has waited, and I pray today that you would give your life to him. Jesus is God. The Bible tells us that we will not be put to shame if we put our faith in him. And I will tell you that I can preach to you till I'm blue in the face, and I'm not even like a quarter of the way there yet. I could preach to you till I was blue in the face, but it will never convince you today, now, Hear the voice of the Holy Spirit drawing you, pointing back to Jesus, pointing to the cross, showing you your sin, not to shame you, but to show you that you need a savior. And if you've done, if you've placed your faith in Christ, but now, you know, life, life has gotten in the way and you're just, you're not where you're supposed to be. You, you know that you're doing stuff you shouldn't be doing. You know that you're acting ways that are not congruent with what the word of God says. Maybe you've believed things about Jesus that aren't true. 
Maybe you were taught these things and you just took them as gospel because the person who taught them to you respected you. You respected them. And, and maybe they weren't being malicious either. Maybe they just taught you that way because that's how they were taught. They'd just been lopping, lopping off the ends of the ham too, just like you were. But today, now you have, through grace, the, the ability to repent. And so that's your challenge today. Give your life to Christ, whether it's the first time, the next time, or the last time. Give your life to Christ because he is God. He loves you. He is for you, not against you, the Bible says. And so I wanna pray with you. So let's stand. Ben, if you wanna come on up and just play a little bit, that'd be great. Second Corinthians 5 and 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, same verbiage that Paul used in Romans 8, 1. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Today is the day that you can become a new you. The couple more weeks and the newness of the year is going to wear off. Gyms are going to be empty. Churches, people are going to stop reading their Bibles because they started a devotion. They're going to get into numbers and they're going to be like, yeah, I'm done with this. All of the newness of the year is going to wear off and all that's going to be left is you in Christ. So I want to pray with you. Father God, we praise you this morning. Thank you that in Christ today, we can be a brand new creation. That what you've done for us cannot be equaled by anybody else on this planet. No one who has ever existed or who will come will equal what you have done for us. We believe today by your word that Jesus is more than just a good person or a spiritual being or one of many gods, we believe him to be God. And even as we express that, maybe we struggle with it, Lord. Maybe there's still doubts. Maybe there's still questions we have. I'm asking that you would come, even as we come to you in faith, Lord, that you would bring answers to those questions. As I read the gospels, I see Jesus being approached by children and him just embracing them. There's no rebuke, no condemnation for kids just coming to him and talking to him and and just wanting to be in his presence, Lord. And I'm praying that you would help us to have that mindset. Even if we're confused, even if we, we can't make heads or tail, tails of this, Lord, we want to. Maybe we're not there, Lord. Maybe, maybe we're, we're spiritually dead. Maybe that hunger has gone away for you. I'm praying, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would awaken us in that way that you would shake us free of our complacency, that you would take the fire of the spirit within us that might just be a few glowing embers, that you take it and breathe on it to make it a roaring fire. Not just enthusiasm, not just, not just uh, being real raucous about our, our, our faith, Lord, but being so hungry for you that everything else will kind of just fade away. And we'll hunger for your word and we'll hunger for your presence and we'll hunger for prayer and we'll hunger for uh, being in fellowship with other, other Christians and, and we'll hunger to share our faith with others. Father, we can do none of this without you. So I'm praying now, Lord, I've said all the words I can say now. I'm praying that you would take all of this and just go farther and deeper into the souls of your people than I ever could. Take your word, speak to their heart, the, the places that are walled off from the rest of the world that no one else can get to except for you. May these truths be their truths and may Jesus be their God. We praise you, Lord. We thank you and we love you. In your name we pray, amen. Um.